It's week 17 of 2018, and we're back here in the studio after being out at RSA in San Francisco. So we've got a lot of news to catch up on, uh, including security, Apple, Gmail, lots of different things. And that's all coming up on the Technado. It's starting right now. Hello and welcome to the Technado. I'm your host Peter Van Rysdam, and I'm joined as always by Don Pizzette. I shouldn't say as always because last week I was I was out in San Francisco. You with, abandoned with me. Were, were you okay? I was left here with you know these people at IG Pro TV, and it was horrible. But you had a lot of fun out at RSA. I did, and I know now that you didn't actually watch the podcast because I introduced Daniel as Don 2.0. And I said I'm doing that just to see if Don actually watches while yeah. we're gone, and, and and nothing, nothing back. So yeah. yeah, we had a really good time. We had a good time. That's because I'm like Don 5.0. See, so I, okay. why would I look that far back? <laughs> that's a that's a fantastic point. But yeah, anyway. we did we did have a lot of good sessions, uh, a lot of great interviews, and uh, and learned quite a bit uh, out there as as uh, as we shared. And and uh, we've got all those interviews um, going up actually today and tomorrow. Um, on our YouTube channel, um, uh, we've got a playlist up for RSA 2018. So be sure to check those out because, like I said last week, we did 18 interviews um, on uh, uh, on the show floor there at RSA. But uh, that means that we uh, neglected a lot of big news stories. So let's jump right into those because we've got a lot to talk about. So the first one up uh, here is from ThreatPost.com. Uh, and this is uh, it says the use of Stegware increases in stealth malware attacks and and Don, I assume uh, Stegware is a, a dinosaur, uh, you know, sort of dinosaur-based attack. I prior to this article, I had not heard anybody call it Stegware, um, and I, I certainly see where you would think Stegosaurus, right? But it, it's short for steganography. And if you've if you've worked in the security field, you should already be familiar with steganography, and that's where you hide data inside of something else, right? Uh, the the best example was something that was used by numerous terrorist groups over the years where they take their documents, they encrypt them so they're hidden, and they hide them inside of images, uh, GIFs, JPEGs, and like so- Like in the, in the metadata of the- not, not in the metadata, like in by changing individual pixels every really? here and there, to the human eye, you don't see it. Okay. The picture just looks like normal, but then you actually have data embedded inside of it. Uh, well, one of the stories, and this is, this is old news now, this was 20 years ago, was where a, a terrorist group had uh, smuggled data in, uh, in pornographic images. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a religiously backed group. So people who were doing intelligence, they said, well, they, they would never use these for, for transmitting data, but, but they certainly did. So hiding data, it's almost like a Trojan horse, except it's usually not an executable. It's hiding, uh, like exfiltrating data by embedding it inside of images, tacking those images on as email signatures and sending it along. You see an email that looks very innocuous, very just generic email. There's an image in the signature inside of that image, is now additional data. So what their branding is Stegware, and I'm not exactly sure who came up with that term, is where you actually have malicious software where its entire payload is not in the executable. Because it, if the if the virus is all inside of the executable, it loads into RAM, and antivirus software, host-based intrusion prevention software, things like that can see it and say, oh, nope, that, that matches a signature. But if part of the payload is in the executable, but the other part is nested in some image, it's now two separate pieces. And scanned individually, they might not be noticed. 
right? And then when it runs, that software can just load the data from the image. Now it's got its full payload to do the damage. So that type of attack is on the rise. We're starting to see more of that out there in the field. And that's what ThreatPost was responding on. Uh, they did a pretty good write-up on some of the different things that have been turning up out there. Uh, they were talking about how the Sundown exploit kit, which came out in 2016, was one that really kind of popularized this idea. And now we're starting to see a heck of a lot more of it out there in the wild right now. So expect to see more... Again, I, I don't know who came up with Stegware, but that's going to be a terminology that, that we're going to see more and more over the, the rest of 2018. Now, when you defined Stegware, to me it sounded like you were defining a Trojan because it's it's something hiding in, in sure. something else. How, how is this different, or is this a, a subset? Sure. So with a Trojan horse, we're normally talking about an executable. So here's this program. You think it's one thing, and you run it, and it's actually doing something else. Okay. okay? Well, with steganography, it's not normally an executable. It's normally like an image. And if I say, here's this image, it actually is the image. If you open it, there's the image. But nested inside of it is additional data, data that's not executable by itself. If I open the image and have no idea there's other data hidden in it, it behaves like an image. And if I close the image, that's it. Like, it, it never, never actually infects my machine. By itself, that's just hidden data, right? But attackers can use that two ways. One, they could actually carry, say, malicious payload in there, right? But a second program would have to be used to open it and execute it. And that's different than a Trojan, where the Trojan is able to execute itself, right? So it's two sure. pieces. So up until now, where you really saw this used was in a second form, which was exfiltrating data. Let's say that I, I hack into your server, and I get access to your database. And now I want to transmit all that out to my own servers. Well, a network administrator could watch and see that data flowing out and say, wait a minute, I know exactly what that is. There's my data going out, and they can stop it. But if they use steganography practices, they could nest it inside of images, emails, documents, where it just looks like regular traffic. And it flows right out, and it is very, very difficult to, to see. Uh, had I thought about it before the, the podcast, I could have whipped up a quick example where uh, I, I used to do this in the security courses I would teach, where I could have two images, one that had the full text of Moby Dick embedded in the image and the other one that didn't. And with the human eye, you would look at them, and you couldn't tell the difference. They mm -hmm. just looked the same. And even if you knew it was there, that text could be encrypted. I would usually use like AES-128 or something to encrypt it, chuck it in there. And now, even if somebody knew the payload was there, they still had to have a private key to decrypt it and get at it. So that's what steganography does. It's, it's similar, but, but different enough from a Trojan that they're not grouped under the same name. Got it. So it's called Stegware because it uses multiple, multiple facets, like the back of a Stegosaurus has multiple there we go. Uh, humps. There. And then it's got a spike tail. Clearly. So there's always yeah. that. It ties <laughs> it all together. That makes total sense now. Uh, all right, next up, uh, we've got uh, an article from Ars Technica about... Uh, I, I love when they add Giddon to a word. It's just like uh, gate, like uh, Watergate or whatever uh, gate uh, is the most recent thing, but Giddon, uh, Drupal Giddon 2, so it's not even Drupal Giddon 1, which we all remember, of course, uh, touches off an arms race to mass exploit powerful web servers. So uh, that sounds pretty frightening because it's powerful web servers. Absolutely. So, um, and, and let me just throw in here real quick that uh, Snowmageddon is my vote for favorite mm. use of uh, the Geddon add-on, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Drupal Geddon, uh, there was a pretty big security flaw in Drupal. This was detected about two months ago. Uh, the Drupal team patched it, released an update out that fixed it, and, and took care of that. Uh, the security company, Securi, actually did a really good write-up on how that exploit worked and how they could patch it. Uh, they have a service that does inline patching, so it, it behooves them to find things like that. 
But like any security exploit, the problem here is if it's fixed, that's part of the battle, but you've got to get people to update to apply the fix. And there are tens of thousands of Drupal servers that are out there that have not been patched. And if you've never heard of Drupal, it's, um, it's very similar to like WordPress. It's a content management system. So if you want to whip up a website with a blog, you can fire up Drupal and, and be done in a, a few a matter of moments, right? It's super easy. It's got a theming platform and all that stuff. It's actually really good software. But when a vulnerability is found in it, there are thousands of Drupal servers all over the world that all become susceptible to a, an attack. In this case, the Drupal exploit is known. The code is released out there for how people can exploit it. And now they're doing it. In fact, what Security found, I think it's actually in this Ars Technica article, um, I think they quote Security in here somewhere, uh, about saying how if they bring up a server and it's not patched, that it's getting scanned thousands of times per hour. And at this point, the announcement basically, let's find it. Oh, here it is, Security. The quote from Security is, anyone that has not patched is hacked already at this point. Right. Wow. The scanners are so prolific. They're scanning the, the internet host so rapidly that if you have a Drupal server that has not been patched for CVE 2018-7600, then you are hacked. You, you have been broken into at this point. Now, they might not have done anything with it, right? They, they've gotten into your server, but they may not have, have changed your payload. But a lot of them are using it to turn your system into a scanner, so you're in turn scanning other systems. So it's really important if you use a Drupal server, you need to get it updated. If you haven't, Update now, assume that you're hacked though, so you need to evaluate what damage has been done to your system and get things repaired. Uh, if you're one of those people, reach out to Security. I've, I've done uh, a lot of work with them in the past. They're a great company and they can actually help you clean your server up. Sounds good, I will uh, I will do that this afternoon to all my Drupal. All your Drupal uh, servers? Servers, yes. <laughs> um, all right, next up, uh, this one sounds a little fun. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, bug bounties and things recently and there's a startup now um, that is in Dubai offering $3 million to anyone who can hack the iPhone. And I know we did a webinar yesterday uh, about pen testing. And the last question we had was, how do I pen test without getting the police to knock on my door? And, and Don, you gave a great answer that you should only be pen testing the things that, that you own. So we're, we're saying hack your own iPhone here, right? Yeah. I hope. Yeah. So this one, um, this one's a tough one. Uh, the thing about bug bounty programs is that normally they're trying to make a system more secure, right? So in this case, we have a startup, a startup in Dubai, right? So, uh, you know, you have to understand what country these startups are in to understand what their laws and what their motivations happen to be. Uh, so in this case, they're willing to pay over a million dollars, in this case, over $3 million for anybody who can provide a, a hack to be able to break into the iPhone. Now, it's funny because if this were 10 years ago, there were tons of people that were trying to find ways to jailbreak iPhones so that you could run emulators and, and unauthorized software and, and gain root access and do all sorts of fun things with your iPhone. People used to find iOS hacks and just publicly release them, right? But about five years ago, that whole world changed. And now it wasn't just this fun thing, right? There were, there were hackers like, um, uh, was it uh, George, George Lutz? Uh, Geohots was his, his uh, handle. Uh, and and he, would, he would find an exploit, and he would just release it on the internet. Here you go, guys, have fun. And this whole homebrew community was built around doing that. Now it's nation states saying, we need to be able to surveil our citizens. We need to be able to break into our own citizens' phones to get at their data in violation of pretty much every aspect of privacy. And we need exploits that will let us do that. And sometimes they come up with it on their own. Sometimes 
they're doing competitions like these and just saying, hey, we'll pay $3 million. If you can find an exploit for us and turn it over to us, we, we would love to have it. And, and here it's not limited to just iOS. It's Android. It's iOS. And they're offering money for it. Now, what are they going to do with that exploit once they get it? It's not like they're saying, hey, we'll pay $3 million if you hack it, and then we'll turn it over to the public. And here everybody can benefit, right? What they're saying is turn it over to us because we can go on and create these secretive and controversial devices that get sold to governments. Some governments that are friendly governments, <laughs> some governments that are not, like, that are, are uh, you know, uh, abusive dictatorships, uh, that they, they can turn this over and they can use it to control the press, to control the population, and, and so on. Well, These well the, be- last, the last sentence here in this article, uh, in 2016, uh, the UAE government was accused of trying to use uh, an iPhone Zero to exploit against a well-known human rights activist. Uh, yeah, so. yeah. So, <laughs> so it's not like, I mean, if you want to make a cool $3 million, great. Yeah. You know, if you can find an exploit, you can sell it to these guys, get $3 million, and it is on the up and up. You know, you're, you're, you're hacking your own phone, you find the exploit, you turn it over to them. But you just have to remember how these things are, are going to get used. And uh, sometimes they're used for fun purposes. Sometimes they're used <laughs> for advancing security. If you want to advance security of iOS, though, you wouldn't sell it to these guys. You would talk to Apple. Yeah. Like that, that's what you would do. So the odds are this is, is not going to be used uh, for the greater good. Well, fun is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, really, no, that's true. You know, what is fun to to me? It might be you know exploiting uh, human rights activists. Uh, it's right. it's all personal opinion. Uh, another thing that's just just fun, and you can have a lot of uh, good times with our next article on, on BBC.com. Uh, hotel doors, uh, hotel door locks worldwide were vulnerable to a hack. Uh, I mean, I, I guess this was bound to happen when we all switched to these electronic systems, and uh, you know, chances are there are chains that all share the same technology, and and uh, someone discovered uh, that that they were vulnerable. So, yeah, I had read a, a similar article from a different news site, and their headline was a little bit different. It said, "Hackers create master key to over three hundred thousand hotel rooms." Wow. Um, you know, a lot of hotels have switched to keyless entry now. Oh, it's not keyless, right? You have a card that you wave in front and you go in, or or some of them have actually tied onto Apple's program. You use your Apple Watch to open up the door, or um, Disney World, they switch Disney those little the, armbands. Yeah. yeah. So it's a lot easier than giving people a key that can't be changed, but it is, it's a computer system. And so they found a flaw in the locks where they're able to basically generate a key that can open pretty much any door, right? And, and that's what it's saying. You can access restricted floors, you can access locked rooms, and be able to get in there. Um, the team that discovered this was F-Secure, and basically they're saying they've, they've been working with manufacturers to create a fix, but the problem is a lot of this is hardware. And the other problem is that a lot of these vendors, they they specialize in creating hardware locks. The software is an afterthought to them. And so having some update system in place, how, how do we go out and update all these locks across all these hotels? They don't have a system in place for that. This is really not a, a door lock problem. This is an Internet of Things problem, an IoT problem. And we're seeing more and more of those lately. So I, I kind of have different opinions on this because, you know, on one hand, it's like, man, attackers could open up my hotel room. But all along, hotel staff has been able to open up your hotel room, right? You know, the, the cleaning crew gets in there every single day. The manager can issue out a key. It's been easy to social engineer managers for a long time uh, to get hotel room keys. Yeah, and what's the bigger risk that that all of these locks are are internet connected locks? Then, and to me, that's a lot easier to hack than sure. It lets them get in and and put out a patch quicker, but yeah. it also opens you up. 
Maybe it could be like one of those jail movies where remotely just all of a sudden all the doors all just them. open up at sure. once. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then everyone's on the same page, so that that's fine with me. Um, so, yeah, just uh, bring your own lock when you go to hotels now, I would say, until— and- and there are there, there are, there yeah, are a number devices. of very cheap products available on on Amazon and other sites that are just simple like stick on alarms if the door opens up it goes off that kind of thing. Uh, I know some people bring little door stops to stick behind the door at night uh, or you know engage the uh, the deadbolt or whatever that extra lock is that's yeah. not tied to the key card. Uh, that's important while you're in the room. While you're out of the room, it's more important than ever to secure your valuables especially secure your computers. And there is no better argument right here for uh, using systems like FileVault or BitLocker or Veracrypt to encrypt the hard drives on your system so that if somebody steals your laptop that you left in your hotel room, you know that your data is still safe. That's more important than ever. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's switch gears a little bit now to, uh, we've got some Gmail, some Google articles here. Um, these ones from Tom's Hardware. So the first one here, forged email headers strike fear in Gmail users. And, and I read something about this the other day where they were saying, yeah, people were realized they were ha- hacking themselves or, or had, so, had phishing attacked themselves. You know, this is a, an interesting because th- this has been a problem for a long, long time. And I'm, I'm a little jaded to it because... Uh, through all the, the videos and instruction that I've done over the years, I give my email address out to a ton of people. And my email address is posted on a number of web pages out there. So my spam volume is pretty spectacular. Uh, and, and the amount of email that I get is, is pretty high. Well, I will routinely get uh, failed delivery messages, right? Where uh, it says the mail server failed to deliver your email because it had a virus on it, Right. And in the olden days, when email was created, it was very trusting, right? Everybody, everybody kind of trusted each other, and nobody would ever masquerade as somebody else. But the reality is that email doesn't have a whole lot of authentication mechanisms to it. And forging an email is super-duper easy. If I wanted to write an email make it look like it came from George Bush, it would take me all of two minutes to do it. And most of that would just be me trying to come up with the funniest email I could possibly type. <laughs> uh, the actual act of forging it takes a, a matter of seconds. So I get these emails pretty frequently saying that I just sent some malicious email and it bounces back. So you get these bounce messages. Well, that doesn't mean that I've been hacked, right? Anybody can forge an email and say it's from me and they can send it along. And if it gets blocked anywhere along the way, the servers will send a bounce message, which actually will come back to me. Doesn't mean my account's been hacked. It means that email is just inherently insecure. That, that's how it is, right? A lot of people don't realize how little security is built around email. Servers have no way to verify an email came from who it said it came from. And SMTP transmits email in plain text by default, which makes it super easy to do man-in-the-middle attacks. A lot of servers have started switching to doing SSL or, or TLS, really, transport layer security to encrypt it. That helps a little bit, but you still can't verify an email came from who they said it came from. So there's, there's things like the sender policy framework and DMARC and other things that are working to fix that, but they're all optional right now. So there is no true way to verify an email came from who that says it did unless there's a digital signature attached to it, if somebody's using PGP or, or pro- processes like that. But anybody can forge an account. So what happened this week is that some attackers really started to do that in volume. And now you've got regular people that are getting these messages, messages that I've, I've been getting for 10 years. People are starting to get in volume right now. And so people started freaking out, saying, oh, Gmail got hacked. Gmail's compromised. And that's not the case. It's just 
spammers will routinely use your address, uh, you know, once they have it, uh, to be able to to transmit messages out. So this is not a not a security weakness, not something you need to patch. It's just a flaw in the email system. The only real option here is to ignore it. Unfortunately, mostly spam will go to your spam box, right? It'll get filtered out. But bounce messages don't normally get filtered out because they seem important. So the system lets them go to your inbox. And now you open up that bounce message and here's the spam ad or, or, or whatever, links to malicious sites. So don't click on links in post box uh, or post office bounce messages. You don't want to click on those because yeah. you're not the one who sent the message in the first place. And what's interesting here in this one too, it says the messages sender forged the email's header to trick Gmail into putting the message into the sent folder instead of the inbox. So if you went back and said, wait, did I send something? It, it maybe looks like you did. Uh, even though you didn't, because they can actually modify what's going on there to to have it show up in whatever folder they want. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. Uh, it, again, it, it's trivial because email, the way that it's it's written right now, the way that SMTP hands off things, the way that the message transfer agents or MTAs work, they don't they, they don't have a way to verify that data. It, all of this was created back in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and the world was a much more trusting place back then. It it's time. Like we need a new messaging protocol to replace how email is handled. But it is such a ubiquitous system that everybody uses. It's really hard to change that. Well, Don, you're in luck because just two days after this article, uh, we have another article from Tom's Hardware that Gmail adds new security features during redesign. And I'm sure this will address uh, all of the concerns you just had, right? Sort of. Um, <laughs> so. So I've complained. I, I use Gmail every single day. I, I've had a Gmail account since they opened in the very beginning. Uh, so I, I like Gmail. But I've used them every day since they opened in the very beginning, and they really haven't changed much since then. In the last 16 years or however long it's been, probably longer, Gmail by and large looks the same as it did back then. And feature-wise, it's practically the same. They've added a few new things, but overall it hasn't seen a lot of love from Google. And this week they've rolled out into production their new UI, right? That makes it, a, it looks prettier, right? They did the same thing with Google Calendar, which again is another product they really hadn't updated. So they're making things look prettier and add new functionality. And, and that's what Tom's Hardware is reporting on. But they also added in some security features. Those security features are designed to, to again, help to make sure that you understand, um, you know, whether an email is safe or not. The big thing though is, People have been pushing for features like end-to-end -end email encryption, where when I write the email, it's encrypted. It's then sent along. Whoever receives it, receives it as encrypted. They can use their key to unlock it, and they know it's the email that I sent, that it came from me and not from an attacker. Well, Google rolled out security features, like the ability to set an expiration date, like the ability to... Um, uh, basically like ex expire an email and say it's only good for two days and then it's gone or to unsend an email that's already been sent. They added that, but they stopped short of adding encryption. And that's a really big problem because that's the real, that's the one feature that would add true email security and allow us to filter out. I mean, imagine if I just said, Hey, if any of you out there receive an email from Don at IT.TV and it's not encrypted with this key, then it's crap immediately you know I can throw that email away. You just found a 100% effective way to identify spam coming from my address. If you don't, if it doesn't match this key, then it's garbage. Well, Google can't implement that feature. And the reason is they have to be able to look inside of your email to serve up relevant ads. That's how they make money, are on the ads. And if they do end-to-end -end encryption, they, 
you just killed their revenue stream, the way that they make money, the way they learn about you and your interest and what ads to serve up. So Google will never be able to offer the full level of security that we need unless they start doing paid Gmail. Well, they have paid Gmail, but they still use the ads there too. So it, it, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword and, and we still don't get the security features. So while they did roll out some security features, they're really not effective. They're really not the ones that we need to truly authenticate email and solve a lot of these problems. Well, Google might uh, might need to go ahead and charge anyway uh, to everyone because, according to our next article on The Verge, they are just bleeding cash, and they probably only have uh, hundreds of billions in the bank. Yeah, now. yeah, it's, it's um, getting tight. So, yeah, things are <laughs> they're tight in the old belt there uh, in Mountain View. But um, they're bleeding cash trying to take on Amazon in the, uh, in the smart home space. So, um, you know, just... This, I mean, this last Christmas, I feel like we were seeing ads every day for Google Home, Google Home Mini, and Alexa, and things like that. So um, that that's really where the fight is now. So you know, Alexa has been a big surprise hit for Amazon. Uh, they've done a great job getting that device out there. People have taken up to it, and uh, and they they didn't do it at like a rock bottom discount price. You know, the the original Alexa cost one hundred and eighty dollars. You get it discounted down to maybe a hundred bucks, but you know, they've they've made money off of that hardware and released a pretty neat platform that you can ask it questions and you can buy things. You know, that's what Alexa does. So Amazon has, has done really well with it. Well, Google, who has one of the best search algorithms possible and can find answers and things better than anybody, it makes sense they would be in that space, but they were a little late to the game and they released Google Home and they acquired Nest to make that part of their solution so they can compete toe-to-toe with Alexa. But they've been losing out big time. And, you know, you mentioned all the ads. If you think about all the ads, what were they? If you get a cell phone, we'll give you a free mm-hmm. Android or uh, uh, Google Home. If you buy one Google Home, we'll give you a second one free. It was all these ways to give you one for free because people weren't going out and buying them that they already had an Alexa device. Or they were holding out for the Apple one, which, boy, that one was a turd. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Apple is another one who totally missed the boat on on this. The sad part here, like with Apple, I don't feel bad because Siri's terrible. Um, you know, Alexa's not that great either as far as asking or answering questions. I ask Alexa questions all the time that it can't answer. The Google Home device, the sad part here, it's really good. If you ask it questions, it's always got great information. Like it is able to answer questions better than just about anybody, but they're just not winning in that market. And so right now, Google is making it kind of like a loss leader where, um, uh, they recorded 621 million in losses in Google Home, but they're not giving up. They're just continuing to dump the funds. Like you mentioned with Alphabet, the the parent company, they make just hundreds of <laughs> billions of dollars. Like I mean, they are a massive, massive organization. So when we talk about a 620 million dollar loss, that would be like I don't know, dropping a five dollar bill yeah. on the ground. Oh, you us. poor things. Yeah. <laughs> so they'll they'll survive. Uh, they're not giving up, but it it certainly is surprising, and it shows how sometimes sometimes you might have a better product, but not be winning. So here you've got me. I'm I'm acknowledging. I, I think Google Home is a better product, but I've got an Alexa on my desk, not a Google Home, and I've got Alexa at home. And there's you know. a Nest watching us too, back so, over your shoulder that's as well. Actually, a uh, Amazon Cloud Cam. That is. Oh, that looks exactly yeah, like looks, the Nest. They, in they totally ripped off the Nest. I mean, that's. <laughs> Who ripped off whom? We'll have to get to the bottom Amazon of that. Amazon ripped but... off Nest. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a given. Well, apparently it worked because but... uh, 
uh, they, they're they're the ones winning right now. Yeah, yeah, and you know that that's funny. So we'll we'll see that battle continue. The other interesting thing that's not mentioned in the article by The Verge, I, I don't think they mention it anywhere in here, is how Apple has totally failed to penetrate that market. Uh, and I think it's because when they finally rolled out the HomePod, it was over three hundred dollars, and it just played music. Like, come on, make it do something. Yeah. yeah. Well, Apple's mo seems to be to, to wait until the market is established sometimes, and then come in and and uh, and make a better one. So. Um, you know, I don't. I don't think we've heard the last of them. Yeah. yeah, I guess that's what surprised me here is they waited, and then they released a product that wasn't better. Yeah, like they went for sound fidelity, and you know, so if you play music on an Apple HomePod, it does sound better than yeah. on the Google or Amazon devices. But functionality-wise, beyond beyond playing music, it's not impressive. So it ends up being a three hundred dollars speaker, which yeah. you could already get Bose speakers for that. You don't need to get Apple involved. That's true. Uh, well, sticking with Amazon now, because that was kind of about Amazon in a roundabout way, uh, we've got news right from AWS here on their blog. Uh, the registry of open data uh, is now on AWS. Uh, so what does that mean for us? All right. So we've reported a few times over the last few months about uh, AWS S3 buckets with sensitive data that were not secured. Right. So government contractors, the military, uh, you know, whoever it is where they have this big set of data and they store it in S3 and they forget to click that make it private button, you know, and, and now it's public and somebody finds it and all that data has now been leaked. Well, that's the bad side of having data stored in S3. This is the good side. There's actually a lot of data that's generated by the government, by the military, by private sector that they want to share with the world and say, here's this massive data set, use it how you'd like, right? So that you don't have to reinvent the wheel and you've got access to this great volume of information. The problem was learning that it existed, finding that data. So what Amazon did is they set up the registry of open data on AWS, which they call Rota, um, which is, I don't know, kind of an antiquated name for technology. Here's our new new database technology is called Gertrude. And uh, <laughs> like, give it a cooler name. Sorry, Gertrude. Um, but, but basically what Rhoda does is a collection of all of these different data sets that are publicly available. And if you browse through, there's some really neat ones in here. I mean, they, they list them all, or you can search through it and find it. Um, but basically there's the ones like Sentinel-2, which has a lot of satellite imagery and data that's been collected. There's one in here that has to do with uh, elevations. So maybe you're writing a game that's a flight simulator, and you want to have a map that spans the globe, but you need proper elevations so you can do mountains and other things. You can tap right into that database that's being published free of charge from, from Amazon and gather that data and have real-time, up-to-date information for the entire globe or, or whatever it is you're tapping into. Um, as you kind of poke around in here, they, they give you exactly how you can interact with it, the API calls you need to make to get into it, and, uh, and basically take a look at what that data is. It's a, a massive set of information that's in there. And if I, here, if we just kind of browse over to its actual homepage, this is the blog post that was announcing it. Uh, but if you uh, browse over to it, you can come in and take a look at a lot of what's over there. And some of it is, is kind of interesting because you have like, uh, here, IRS 990 filings. The bulk of every IRS 990 government, I mean, uh, business filing from 2011 to present is available right there. You can poke through it and uh, see what you can find. I'm sure it's very exciting. Uh, terrain tiles, that's the elevations I was talking about. Uh, you can pull those from there. Uh, the common crawl, it's a collection of web data containing over 5 billion web pages. 
So kind of like Google's database of web pages, you could have your own database of web pages right off the bat that you could do statistical analyses on or create your own search engine and so on. The cool thing here, though, is that this is all just public data. It's stored and it's available. Uh, New York City taxi and limousine commission trip record data. Uh, it's stuff like that that if you're a, a data analyst is really interesting and entertaining. This one got me was the Amazon Bin image data set. Over 500,000 images. Uh, images taken by their robotic units uh, as they, they move packages from one shelf to another. Apparently, they've taken images of it and they put it in here. I'm not exactly sure how you would use that to do anything exactly, but, uh, <laughs> but it, it's got it. Uh, so some are certainly more useful than others, but it's cool to see somebody take what's widely been a problem, these data sets that are being not secured like they should be, and saying, here's some that are intentionally not secured so that you can use them and, and who knows what ideas people can come up with. But this is the kind of thing that basically um, you get by being an AWS customer. So it's kind of just a way for them to uh, try to you know, get you over from Azure or, or any of the other providers, basically. Well, in this case, they, they've published the API connections and it's free. So if, if I had my entire infrastructure in Azure... I, I you can still tap there. into that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well. Yep. So they, they haven't put a lot of strings on this. It's it's pretty pretty open. Even more impressive then. Um, and and just for the record, my uh, grandmother's name is Gertrude, is it really? um, which is both uh, proving your point um, and offensive. Yeah. So. Well, your grandmother's lame. So so there. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I'm going to make fun of yeah. his grandmother the rest of the show. God rest your soul. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, Amazon X has a top secret plan to build home robots uh, that will, um, you know, be be the death of us. I, I remember buying uh, on my, my wedding registry, buying these silver candlesticks, thinking, well, that's... I'm buying the thing that's going to murder me uh, someday, <laughs> and and this basically is the same thing. Uh, these, these robots, uh, I assume, uh, will be... Uh, our new overlords, but but Don, this, well, this excited you. So they're, they're, this is my favorite article of the week because it, it's super top secret, right? So they're not really giving us a lot of details. This is from Bloomberg. Bloomberg only has so many uh, pieces of information on here. But basically, they've got a robotics team. They're trying to create uh, robots that are priced so that they can be placed in the home, right? Uh, and because it's Amazon, who knows what it can do? It can buy stuff for you, bring you a beer, I don't know. But when I see articles like these, there's two things that pop into my mind, right? The first one is the robot from Rocky II, right? When his uh, his brother-in-law has the robot and he yeah. teaches it to, well, basically get him a beer. That, that That's one that pops in. And the other one is the SNL skit, which you knew immediately yeah. when I oh, mentioned yeah. the old glory robot insurance <laughs> from SNL. And I'm, I'm sure we don't have a license to be able to play this thing, but uh, I'm going to cheat the system anyway. And here we go. Sam Watterson, when he's telling you, like, when the robots come to eat your prescription medicines and, and, and they will come, you need yeah. old glory insurance. Well, let me tell you, Sam was right. It's that time. The robots are coming. Amazon's going to make it happen. And you'll get them primed. The robots will come to, to steal your prescription medicine and kill your family in under two days. And what, what's really <laughs> going to be telling then is if Amazon starts providing robot insurance, um, you know, they're, they're uh, going to get both sides uh, of the... Uh, of the payday there. So uh, watch out for that and make sure your prescriptions are locked up uh, because, as as Don said, they are coming. They are. Uh, so we'll look forward to more coming out on that because it's top secret now, so top secret that uh, 
everyone on the internet is talking about it, <laughs> but we don't know what we're talking about yet. Uh, all right, let's switch gears now. Uh, we've got some news about MySQL. Uh, MySQL 8.0 was released with many improvements and faster performance. This is on Pharonix. Uh and so uh, so this this is a, a a big deal, I think, for for developers. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, MySQL uh, is it's an open source project. It's a, a relational database that is wildly popular. It's it's actually ranked like the number two database platform in the world. Check it. I got that in the background here. Uh, DB Engines ranks it as number two with Oracle actually being number one and Microsoft SQL Server being number three. So, I mean, it's right up there in the top. Now, MySQL started as an open source project that was largely funded by Oracle, and now it is basically wholly owned. Oracle does own MySQL. So Oracle Database is their commercial product. And then MySQL, they have both. They have the open source free one, and they have the commercially supported version of it. Now, when Oracle took over, there were a lot of people that were upset about that and said... I don't want a commercial entity controlling this open source project. And so people started jumping ship to a product called MariaDB, which was a fork of the last open source version of MySQL. But if you look at old DB engines here, MariaDB is ranked way down here at number 18. Uh, actually, sorry, it's number 14. It jumped trending up. quite a bit. Yeah, trending up. So uh, as of April, it is now ranked number 14 and climbing. So what a lot of people are doing is saying, if I've got MySQL deployed... I should start migrating over to MariaDB if I want to adhere to the open horse, uh, open horse, open uh, source <laughs> standards, whatever it is, and uh, uh, and then you'll migrate over. But for those of you that are sticking with MySQL, Oracle has shown it some love with a pretty big jump. Uh, MySQL's last stable version was 5.7. Now we're jumping all the way to 8.0, and they're adding some new features, a lot of security tweaks, better JSON support. But the main thing is performance. The advantage of having the world's largest commercial database provider involved is that they kind of know how to make databases work. And so MySQL 8 is supposed to see improvements that sometimes are up to, this is marketing speak, up to 30 times faster than uh, previous performance. We'll see if we actually get that. But MySQL is still available for free. For free. It's got a community edition. You can go right to the mysql.com webpage, download it, install it. It's, it's in the repositories of most Linux distributions. If you're using a repo, though, watch out because a lot of them will still be 5.7. 8.0 literally just came out on April 19th. So it will, uh, it'll take a little while to trickle out to all the big repos. Uh, but it is definitely a big deal if you use MySQL databases. I will get on that right after I'm finished uh, patching those Drupal servers. Uh, well, I, I mean, you could have MySQL backending your Drupal install. It, oh, that's true. It needs a database. That's very true. <laughs> I'm bringing it all together for you here, folks. Uh, all right, next, uh, from the Brisbane Times, um, your old stomping ground of, of Australia, uh, users don't want iOS to merge with macOS, Apple Chief says. So once again, a- Apple is telling us uh, what we want. Um, like we we don't want headphone jacks anymore. Um, we don't I, want I home hate buttons. Headphone jacks are terrible. That's what I've been told uh, that I I don't want. So uh, I I can only assume I agree with them. I only want USB C uh, on all my devices now. I, I don't want phones with a flat screen so you can put a screen protector on them. Instead, if you could put a little stupid curve on the edge of each one to completely make it where screen protector is useless, that would be the, the greatest feature for me. I also hate touchscreen uh, laptops um, oh, with, yeah, with a passion. Yeah, terrible. Um, but now, yeah, we don't want to merge. Because <laughs> uh, we, we've talked about this this technology now, how it, it, it seems to kind of be going that way where iOS and, uh, and um, you know, uh, macOS would be coming together. And, and so this sounds like Apple saying, well, even if you think it's going that way, we're not going to go that way because we don't so, think you want it. 
this is this is one of those times where a CEO comes out and specifically tells us something, and I don't want to believe it, right? So I I, I made a prediction back in December. We did our, our New Year's predictions, right? And I, I said how I think Microsoft is moving away from Windows Server, which it, it, I may well be wrong on, but they are actually moving forward. So I think maybe I'm just a year ahead on that prediction. With Apple, they have all but effectively killed off macOS Server, so it's 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 pretty much gone. Uh, and the macOS de development team has largely been pulled over to the iOS team. So there are very few developers at Apple that are still working on macOS in, in general. And we've seen stability decreasing in macOS with each version. Uh, Peter, how are you loving your High Sierra experience on your laptop? Uh, you know, I haven't made the switch yet. See? I mean, now, what does that say about Apple where they're, they're so proud about how when a new version of iOS comes out, they'll get 80% adoption rate within two months. Yeah. But with Mac OS, people people actively don't want to upgrade because they know how unstable the next version is. And Mac OS High Sierra has been a, a train wreck, really, as far as stability. Uh, and, and it's not the first time that's happened. So Apple has given every indicator that Mac OS is on life support, right? Uh, from, from stability issues to pulling developers from it to not updating hardware, right? The, the Mac Mini hasn't been updated in over three years. Uh, they, I mean, they, they've given every sign. And so what, what are we supposed to think about that? Well, maybe we're going to see iOS become the new platform. iOS has a huge amount of apps. It's very secure. It's very stable. Why not bring that over to the desktop? And you'll have a few power users who are upset, right? But the bulk of users will be perfectly fine with that, and they jump over. So Tim Cook specifically came out and said, look, our users don't want us to merge these platforms, so I don't see that happening, right? Where, where is this actual quote? Well, let's, well, let's try maybe that's actual. the the uh, indication that it is going to happen because uh, there are lots of things that that Apple users don't want that they've still given us. So maybe that means it's, it's coming very soon. That could be it. Um, <laughs> you just you never quite know where yeah. they're thinking or what they're going to do. Um, and I'm trying to find his exact quote where he said it, but basically he's saying here, like, uh, we don't believe in sort of watering down one for the other. Both the Mac and iPad are incredible. One of the reasons that both of them are incredible is because we push them to do what they do well. And if you begin to merge the two, you begin to make trade-offs and compromises. So, you know, that's what he's saying about it. And, uh, you know, we'll see. They're making it where iOS apps will be able to run on top of macOS soon. That, again, to me is like, well, if you're going to start doing that, why exactly are you keeping around macOS? Well, time will tell, I guess. We'll see on this one. But I, I really just, I, unless they're willing to start putting more developers back on macOS and start to make it more stable, I just don't see it being sustainable long term. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um, well, let's stick with uh, some Mac news here. Uh, next on 9to5mac.com, uh, a report that Apple's complaints about AT&T and Verizon may have led uh, to the Department of Justice eSIM investigation. Um, so, snitches. All right, so <laughs> snitches get stitches. So uh, this was kind of a funny one because this, this actually started back with the iPhone 7. When the iPhone 7 came out, Apple used what was called an eSIM. And I remember when I got my iPhone 7, it had an eSIM in it. And the neat part here, and this is kind of a U.S. problem. So in the United States, uh, we have basically two main cellular networks here, Verizon and AT&T. And there's a couple others out there. But, um, but AT&T is a GSM-based network, like what's used in Europe. And Verizon is still CDMA-based. Uh, and I think they're the only one really here in the U.S. anymore. So the, we have these two main networks. 
Well, in the past, they always used different connectivity, either different radios in the phones or different SIM cards or both, so that when you bought an iPhone, you had to get the Verizon version or you had to get the AT&T version. Well, with eSIM technology, they can build the antennas for both technologies into the phone, and you can have a SIM card that's designed to work in either network. So it's just this one eSIM that's built in. It's not an actual card. It's just built into the phone. Well, the phone providers, for whatever reason, said, yeah, we don't want to do that. Uh, and, and this actually started as a universal SIM where there actually was a SIM card. And I remember taking my iPhone 7 in to get it activated because I, I bought it off contract. And so I took it in and they took out the SIM card, dropped it in the trash and put in a different SIM card. So here's this universal SIM that will work on their network and they still just threw it away and put in their own, right? Because they don't want to make it easy for you to switch cell phone networks. They want you to have to, to talk to them and get it transferred over and stuff. eSIM made it too easy to switch cell phone providers. So there was a lawsuit. Right, uh, the Apple has been complaining about AT and T and Verizon, saying, "Look, these guys aren't honoring the eSIM. We're putting eSIMs in there, and they're not using them. They're choosing to use their own SIM cards instead, even when the eSIM is already in place, ready to activate, ready for their network." So the Department of Justice is finally doing an investigation on this. They're stepping in to say, "Look, would you guys quit being buttheads and and just use it? <laughs> I mean, it, it's just really uh, just a silly thing." So it's all about AT&T and Verizon trying to do lock-in on this stuff. And we'll see where it goes. But, uh, but you know, Apple really has been a big part of that, uh, that push to get this universal SIM because that's a challenge people have when they buy a phone. They don't want to know, like, is it only, is it only going to work on this network or that network? Do I have to have the right SIM card in there? They just want, to, they want a phone that doesn't have a crazy little hatch on the top of it that has to have a pinhole to get at the SIM card, which is one more place for water to get in the phone. Johnny Ive wants to get rid of every hole found on your phone, uh, even the ones you talk into. Uh, so so that, that's his dream, apparently, his design goal. Uh, and the SIM card is just one more spot where you have that problem. So we'll, we'll see where that lawsuit goes. I don't think it'll ever get to the courts. I think AT&T, Verizon will finally just say, all right, fine, we'll start honoring them, and yeah. the, the suit goes away. Yeah, we'll stop uh, antitrusting. Yeah. And, uh, and and play by the rules. Uh, well, next up, I'm um, sticking with Mac news on cultofmac.com. Your 13-inch MacBook Pro might need its battery replaced. And, and uh, from what I read, it sounds like they're actually expanding, yeah. which could could be a problem because there's there's limited amount of space in in these uh, devices. So this this article got me because you know it, it says 13-inch MacBook Pro. All right, I use a 13-inch MacBook Pro, so I'm like, ah, great, I'm wrapped up into this thing. But on Cult of Mac, they show a picture. And the picture is actually the uh, the older MacBook Pro, the 2014 and 2016 model. Uh, and so I was like, oh, all right, it's the old model, and that, that's not going to affect me. But it's just an example of using a bad stock image because yeah. it's the non-touch bar edition that was released in the last year and a half. So this one, see how it's got the illuminated Apple on it? That's the old mm. one. The new ones just have the metallic Apple image, which is what I have. And it's the non-touch bar one, which... I, of course, have the non-touch bar. You yeah. actually have touch bar. I've dodged right? the bullet, yes. Yeah, spoiled. So I have no touch bar. So that means I fall within it. Uh, if you're like me and you have a 13-inch MacBook Pro with USB-C ports and it is a non-touch bar model, uh, they made an oopsie with the battery. And there are a couple of batteries that are expanding. When you expand a battery inside a unibody case, it has nowhere to expand to. 
except inside of itself. The chemicals inside touch, and then they tend to explode or catch on fire. So that's a bad thing, and Apple is doing a replacement on that, so they'll replace those batteries and get that taken care of. Uh, if you're not sure if your device is affected or not, Apple does have a page. Uh, Cult of Mac actually linked to it. Apple has a webpage for it, uh, which is www.apple.com slash support slash 13-inch-macbookpro-battery-replacement. Rolls right <laughs> off the tongue. Yeah. Uh, you'd think their marketing team would have done something a little better a little, there. A little bitly, maybe. Yeah. But, uh, but anyhow, on that page, you can jump in and paste in your serial number. Uh, once you post in your serial number, it'll tell you if you're affected. For me, I was able to throw mine in here. And I did it the first day this was announced. But they've actually added a few new serial numbers, so let's run mine just to see if I've been uh, added here. Uh, if you don't know your serial number, it's written on the bottom of your Mac, which is pretty convenient unless you're like <laughs> unless you're typing skin on there or you're trying to type <laughs> it. So if you go to your uh, Apple menu and about this Mac, your serial number is displayed right there on that screen. You can copy and paste it in, and let, let's see if I have to do a, uh, a recall. And nope, I'm not eligible, so that means I'm not part of the recall. So uh, that's good for me. I don't have to go down. But if you are in the recall, then you need to take it down to your nearest Apple shop, and they'll replace that battery free of charge. Yeah, what worries me about things like this is when, when the first one is taken on a plane and catches fire, and then they say, oh, you can't have MacBooks on planes anymore, and it's, you know, it like the whole Galaxy. The, yeah, the Note the, 7s. Yeah, where yep. uh, they, they would clump them all together, and he wouldn't be able to say, no, but look, see, my, my security or my, my serial number is just fine. Mine's a Note 6. Yeah. I haven't upgraded. <laughs> I'm good. Too bad. Yeah, too bad. <laughs> uh, all right, let's switch gears now. Uh, we got some Microsoft news to talk about. So this is on thenewstack.io. You know it's a good site. It's got .io. Yeah. yeah, it's the future. Um, Microsoft Azure Container instances are now ready for production workloads. So uh, this is something we've talked about a little bit in mm -hmm. the past about how containers are coming to um, to the cloud and, and uh, being built in like that. So they're they're ready to go over at Azure. Yeah, so um, you know Microsoft a few months ago rolled out a preview of their Azure containers, which is kind of their their equivalent of Docker, right? So it's a container system that you can use to develop an application on your own machine, and then you can upload right into Azure, and they call it serverless computing, right? Because you never really know about the server or the instances under the hood. You just deal with your container. It's a, it's a good system. Uh, they have a Windows container image, and they have a Linux container image. Uh, it is not directly compatible with Docker. These are a different type of container, but you can build them and deploy right into Azure. It's optimized. It's it's good performance and very stable. So if you are um, if you're somebody who has dived head over heels into the Azure environment and that's the the ecosystem that you're working in, these Azure containers actually work really well and they're directly supported by Microsoft. They do support Docker images as well, though, and so I would always kind of encourage people. It's nice to pick a system that you know you can move if you need to. If I have Docker images, it's easy enough for me to move from Azure to Google Compute Engine to uh, Amazon uh, Web Services. I, I can move. If I get locked into Azure Container Instances, I can't move anywhere else. So you want to make sure that you always keep that in mind as you select the technologies that you use. But this also works with Kubernetes, right? Uh, it can be managed by Kubernetes, okay. yes. Yep. But uh, now that's a difference. Like Kubernetes is the management system that we use for deploying the software. It's different than the actual container format itself. Gotcha. Now, you might be able to write a manifest that builds your software for both container systems, and then you're really covered. And then you've got the choice of, well, why why would I do Docker versus Azure if I can if I can do both, right? Uh, and the reality there is, if you're deploying into the Azure ecosystem, then you'll get you'll get better support by using their container images. Uh, I think as time goes on, we'll start to see new features roll in there, and there'll be a more compelling reason to go with it. 
But the key takeaway of this article is that it's not a preview anymore. It's actually production ready. So if you've been testing and experimenting, it's ready for production workloads now. Gotcha. And we've got uh, one more Microsoft story to get to here. This is on hothardware.com. Uh, Microsoft confirms Windows 10 April uh, update with lots of new features. And I know Don has spent some time looking at these features. So uh, what, what stands out to you? All right, so the, the main thing is that the update is going to happen, right? So the, the update was actually supposed to roll out on April 10th, but there was a, a show-stopping bug that Microsoft had to basically call that off. Uh, so the April update is coming. It's, it's like a Game of Thrones, right? Winter is coming. Yeah. The April update is coming. Uh, there was a lot of debate over what the name was going to be for it, uh, you know, because we had the fall creators update and, and all that. Uh, there were rumors this was going to be called the spring something or other update, uh, but it is just being called the April update. Uh, it's rolling out. Honestly, in my opinion, most of the new features are not all that impressive. Uh, you have this this timeline feature now where you'll be able to resume the things you were working on, very similar to the way that, that Mac OS works, where when you fire a system up, it, it relaunches the programs you're in right back to the point that you were at. Uh, Windows will be able to do that. The biggest feature, in my opinion, is that they reduced, and I don't know if this article even talks about it, uh, but they reduced the amount of time to apply the update. That when the original creator's update came out, uh, it could take a lot of systems on average between 90 minutes and two hours to fully apply the update. And the annoying part was it would download the update in the middle of the night. It would apply a lot of it. And then when you went to log in the first time, it would say, Windows is getting ready. And you still had like another 30 minutes to go <laughs> before it was done. It was super mega annoying. And they made it a little bit better in the fall update when it came out, uh, where it got that down a little bit more. But... Um, but here, oh, here it is. They actually do talk about it in the article. Uh, it says that they've optimized it, and as a result, Windows insiders on average have been able to upgrade within 30 minutes of offline time versus 51 minutes for fall creators and 82 minutes for the original creator's update. So Microsoft is finally getting the update window to be a little more compact, which I think is super important. These updates are are starting to replace the old upgrades. Like If I upgraded from Windows XP to Windows 7, I expected that to take a long time. But if it was just Patch Tuesday, I expected that to be 10, 15 minutes. Well, these big updates that come out now, like the Fall Creators updates, those are designed to be kind of like going from Windows XP to Windows 7. Like they're, they're considered big updates, but consumers don't realize that. And it's just super freaking annoying. So Microsoft is finally rearranging that to make it a little more user-friendly. I'm surprised it took so long. But that, to me, is the biggest feature, which really is not a feature you want to brag about. Like, hey, we're making the update process suck less. Yeah. Uh, there, there's that. But, uh, but otherwise, uh, if, you're a, if you're a sysadmin out there, there's not really any security features or other things rolling out as part of this that are going to impact your life in any, uh, any significant way. I mean, does that mean, though, that... Maybe they shouldn't look at at putting it, uh, deploying it out on their network, or uh, yeah, this wouldn't be one you hurry on. Okay. Eventually, you know, there are some where, like with, um, remember with Windows eight, where you had Windows eight point and then eight point one came out, and eventually Microsoft said we're dropping support for Windows eight, and now we're only supporting eight point one and higher. Well, they've done the same with Windows ten, where they said we're dropping support for Windows ten RTM and Windows ten Creator Update. You've got to have the fall creator update now if you want support, right? Well, the April update, it'll probably be another six months before they say that, and you've got to have it. So you will need to roll it out, but it's certainly not one that I'd be scrambling to roll out as fast as I could. There's not really any um, amazing feature in there that's going to make you die to have it. it it's, 
it's nice stuff to have, but it's not something that you're just going to be jumping to get at. Uh, we'll see, you know, the, the next update might carry something a little bit more to it, but for the most part, um, any security fix you're going to get out of band on this one that doesn't have to be part of some big rollup. Uh, you'll get those, but otherwise, uh, mainly it's just reduced off offline time. Makes sense. All right. Well, let's move on to our final story of the day now. And this is one that it's, uh, I know we talked about Amazon stuff already, but we wanted to save this kind of for our, our WTF section here at the end. So uh, this one's on businessinsider.com. Uh, undercover author finds Amazon warehouse workers in the UK peed in bottles over fears of being punished for taking a break. So that uh, that two-day shipping or, you know, some big cities now the same day or within an hour shipping or whatever it is they do, I don't know, drones and yeah. things uh, coming and bringing your, your fresh groceries. Um, that apparently comes at a price, and that price is uh, – Poor working conditions, as it would seem, for the employees. Yeah, you know, a lot of these articles have been coming out. Uh, Amazon's been taking a, a bit of a hit over the last year about their workplace conditions in the warehouse. Um, most of the articles don't have a whole lot of good background. They might cite one instance and make it seem like it's an epide epidemic, so we don't really know. But I'm just curious, now that Amazon is working on their robot force, mm -hmm. you know, for homes, obviously a robot force in the warehouse would be good. So have they developed a robot that can, can pee in a bottle? Oh, because if yeah. they have, then that that's a game changer. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's probably just one bottle of pee. And <laughs> what office doesn't have a bottle of pee in it that you could <laughs> extrapolate that um, around? I mean, we keep uh, one here on the desk next to me <laughs> at all times. But, you know, this is something that truck drivers have been doing for years. Um, uh, so it, it's not really new there. But, you know, to me, I, I was thinking about the, the people over at Foxconn making the the iPhones going, wait, you, you guys get bottles? Like, that sounds pretty nice. <laughs> That's like, an upgrade. We don't even get bottles over here, so um, yeah, something to something to keep an eye on, and, and I'm sure that uh, you know if there continues to be news coming out about this, yeah. uh, we'll we'll hear about and, some improved working conditions. Amazon has come out and said this yeah. is not true. This is you know we are providing proper uh, workplace conditions. We are providing breaks and so on. So it's a, a bit of a he said he said she said. No. Uh, we'll, we'll see where that goes. Um, no, no, maybe. Maybe this is actually just uh, some thinly veiled workplace drug testing. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, if we could just get them to pee in a bottle, this will yeah, work out. Will... Uh, who, who knows? Talk about we'll... random. Uh, yeah, we, you've already provided the sample. You just didn't know that you were <laughs> providing a sample. Uh, well, speaking of which, we've been in here for uh, you know a good hour or so, and uh, you know I've had this so whole you're ready for bottle of test. water, so I've got to <laughs> go take a, a, a drug test that I didn't know was happening until just now <laughs> as well. But uh, thank you, everybody, for watching. Uh, please take a moment and um, share us with your friends. Rate the podcast. Uh, I've seen we've got a lot of good new ratings on uh, on iTunes in particular and, and some of the other services, so we really appreciate that. Uh, but definitely let your friends know about it as well. So, uh, Don, any closing thoughts today? Don't buy any yellow liquids from Amazon. Yeah, I it's going to stick away from all liquids. I'll buy my yellow liquids locally. So thanks, go. everybody, for joining us in the Technator, and we'll see you next week.